Well, good morning, everyone. I hope I find you well in the new year. Uh, and yes, I can still say Happy New Year since it's still early in January. Um, before I speak, I want to pray for us before we begin to look at God's Word. So let's pray. Heavenly Gracious Father, I want to take a moment to honor the life of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on his birthday weekend for his dedication to bring justice and civil rights to not just African Americans, but for all tribes and nations. Dr. King had a dream that all people would be judged by the content of their character and not by the color of their skin, in spite of what some may think, say, or legislate. I ask that you bless those who carry on his legacy for justice and peace in this country, those that are trying to be unifiers and not dividers. The work is daunting, but what is impossible for man is possible with God. As we prepare now to hear from your word, may you help us to see, feel, experience what you want us to May the words of my mouth and the medication of my heart be pleasing to you. I pray this in the most precious name of Jesus. Amen. In this season of life for me, Christmas and New Year are very special because I get to see my children. They come home, and for a few days, my family is intact, whole again. Well, my children have left the nest, and one is now on the East Coast, and another is in Southern California. And now some of you know them because they grew up in this church, but some of you have never really met them. And usually what happens when people meet our children, they often make comments of whether they look like my wife or me. Naturally, there should be some resemblance because they are our children. Applying that idea to our faith, do you ever wonder what it looks like to be a child of God? It does make sense, this characteristic of looking like our parents would also apply to followers of Jesus Christ. We should look like our Heavenly Father. To be called children of God implies we should both inwardly and outwardly resemble him. And for our benefit, God gave us his son Jesus as our role model as to how that looks in word and deed. We are currently in a series called Upside Down, based on the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. And since this is the beginning of a new year, some of us make resolutions for positive change in our lives. Now, maybe one area is your finance. We look at how we spend or invest our, our money for a better future. And another might be how we invest in our relationships. Now, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus also tells us how to invest, particularly to invest for eternity and for a unified community. His instructions are to bless our lives, but some of us ignore them because we think they're not relevant anymore or they cramp our style. We resist because we feel there's no tangible return on our investment like that in our stock portfolios. However, if we follow Jesus' advice, the upside is a more full and joyful well-being. Some call this wholeness or shalom. But maybe that's not what you want in life. That's not the good life that you're looking for. I really want to be careful here. Jesus does not promise earthly prosperity, 
instead offers a wholeness that is superior to our earthly circumstances. Something that many underappreciate and maybe even don't understand. You don't know what you don't know. When life is good, we don't feel we need Jesus' wholeness. But when our world is falling apart, we wish we had more of it. Full disclosure, to live upside down is not easy and often does not make sense. If we seriously take them to heart, Jesus' teachings will flip our world upside down. It's very hard to go upstream against powerful currents of the world's waves and trends. For many of us, it's unnatural and so countercultural. But if we are to be known as God's people, we must trust that Jesus' upside-down ways, no matter how difficult for us, will lead to a better and blessed life. And I, I love how Caitlin last week challenged us with this question, which will be applicable throughout our sermon series. And that question is, as a Christian, is the world a better place because you're in it? Great question. So let's turn to God's word to continue in the Sermon on the Mount and see what Jesus has to say about how we can make the world a better place. So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 5, verses 19 to 26. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the, long, to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister was something, has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. And that is the word of the Lord. Last week, we all heard that as Christians, we're supposed to be salt and light of the world. That salt and that light are useful because they are distinctive. And when, when applied to us as children of God, our usefulness is dependent on that distinctiveness. You have probably heard this saying many times. For Christians to be in the world, but not of the world. Throughout, through the Holy Spirit's work in us, we are now new beings, new create, creatures. Non-Christians that we encounter should see us as distinctive from them in our newness. Otherwise, we are no different than the people who are not followers. This distinctiveness must be based on goodness and not lies. It must come from God himself. 
Otherwise, our distinctiveness might be associated with what is popular, what's hip and not true. So many today rather believe celebrities and social media influencers over real sources of truth, which feels so boring and bland and even archaic. But truth will always be truth. And this was no different in biblical times because back then there were these religious influencers known as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And I love how Jesus addressed this problem in Matthew 5, verse 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Right off the bat, following his call to be salt and light, Jesus addressed a problem that was plaguing the culture. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees were supposed to be the most righteous and pious group in the Jewish culture. But they were not practicing what they were preaching. But instead, they were gaming the system, actually perverting God's commands, allowing them to look good from the outside. These religious leaders were interpreting and teaching God's commands to their advantage, creating loopholes that allowed them to follow the letter of the law, but just skirting the spirit of the law. Over and over again, Jesus repeatedly said in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, referring likely to the Pharisees' biased teaching and to the common popular thinking of that time before giving his truth. Verse 20, Jesus gave a perplexing warning. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, wow. The so-called righteousness of the uber-religious Pharisees amounted to nothing and fell way short of God's standard of righteousness, something, something somehow related to entering God's family and ultimately heaven. Now, the word, the word righteousness is it's not just a common word that we often use in our daily conversations, if we're honest. I mean, hey, I like some righteousness with that cup of coffee, please. Not likely to be said. Righteousness in Hebrew is a word, sadaka. Put simply, that word means right relations with God and man. Righteousness in Hebrew is, again, the word tzedakah. Now imagine a common person hearing Jesus, that he had to be more righteous than that society's most religious elite to enter heaven. If Pharisees couldn't do it, who could? I want to pause here to ask a question for all of us to consider. How is your righteousness doing today? How we answer that critical question will help us understand whether or not we can enter heaven. And with that as our backdrop, Jesus goes immediately to an issue that we are all really concerned about. Murder. Seriously, Jesus? Murder? Not money, not health, not worries, but murder. Yet Jesus exactly said that. You shall not murder. Now, honestly, not many of us will ever likely disobey that command. 
But on the other hand, like many things in life, I can never say never. Now, as I was reflecting and preparing for this message this morning, I remembered an incident that happened over 50 years ago when I was just in elementary school. Well, back then, I was a scrawny, skinny kid. Come to think of it, I still am. Of course, maybe not the kid part. Physically, I was no threat to anybody. And personality-wise, I was quiet and reserved. But on the playing field, in sports, I was a different person. A different side of me came up, especially in basketball. I was so competitive and intense. Now, thankfully, by the grace of God, finding Jesus saved me and transformed me, I think, into a better person. I was playing hoops one day at the school playground, and a guy guarding me was taunting me and trash-talking, which is kind of normal if you ever played street ball. Now, my style is not to trash-talk. I'm usually a cool-headed, even-keeled kind of guy. But that day, the man guarding me was really getting under my skin. And, and maybe I was having a bad game, but his relentless bullying, I finally snapped. The next thing I knew, I had my hands around his neck on top of him, and I was choking him. In my anger, I could have killed him if people didn't pull me off of him. As a pastor, I'm kind of ashamed and embarrassed to share that story. But my anger caused me to do something terrible to another human being. But I am human. I realize something deep inside me can make me capable to do something so terrible. Now, uh, an epilogue to that story. Obviously, that kid never bothered me again. (laughs) And actually, we became friends later. Besides being a pastor, I'm a retired dentist. And for a few years, I worked both my own private practice and I also worked in the jail system, in the prison clinics. And there I met real-life murderers, killers, and criminals. On the outside, they looked like you and me if you saw them on the streets. Male, female, adult, juvenile, and some were even Christians too. But for one moment in time, they lost control of their emotions. In their anger, they harmed someone. They did horrific acts of violence. I mean, that can happen to any one of us. Like that day on that playground for me. Jesus was not going to let us check off that box saying, we never murdered anyone to show proof of our righteousness. Simply by not murdering does not get you into heaven. Nope, that doesn't fly. That's not how it works. Jesus was taking this Old Testament law about murder one step further, telling us to be mindful of the spirit of the law and not the letter of the law. It wasn't just about getting into heaven. The audience hearing this likely was surprised by this deeper spiritual meaning. Jesus wanted us to know that anger is the same as murder, both subject to judgment. And we see this in verse 22. To clarify, Jesus is not saying never to be angry because Jesus himself was angry at times for things that angered God. 
like social injustices or unfairness. That's what we call righteous anger. Today, we're looking specifically at unrighteous anger, and there will be judgment for that. Verse 22 says, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Here, Jesus intentionally said, brother or sister. Matter of fact, he said this twice, implying this example mainly involved the behavior of his followers in the family of God. A reason for this this emphasis might be that our relationships, not only within the faith community, will be healthier, but also we are being watched by the outside world how we treat one another. Remember, as Christians, we are supposed to be the salt and light of the world. But we all have this darkness in our hearts that needs the light of God to eradicate. It's easy to dismiss that we don't have a problem with murder, but it's harder to avoid saying that we never get angry. Given this context, Jesus says, if one is angry with a fellow believer, there will be judgment. And Jesus uses two examples here to illustrate what he meant. In anger, calling someone raka or you fool is apparently the same as murder and will come with judgment. So why is Jesus making such a big deal with what seems like merely using some bad words? So let's look closer at these two examples. Raka is an Aramaic word that was extremely derogatory, a harsh profanity. It was like calling someone empty-headed or stupid. And I think I'm um, translating very mildly. In that time, this was extreme slander and subject to being brought to court. I imagine it might be like calling a referee the magic word. And forgive my language, which has the abbreviation MF, which for those in the know gets you immediately tossed out of a game. Second example is saying to someone, you fool. So again, why is this so bad? I mean, many of us surely have called people fools. Some scholars believe, particularly for this context, that this is related to what you believe in is foolish. And don't get me wrong, many people believe in foolish things. But here, Jesus was probably referring particularly to the situation back then where his disciples were being called fools. Not just by the non-religious, but also by the religious elite, the Jewish teachers of the law. And God's judgment seems to imply burning in hell for doing that. That's pretty serious, which makes it make sense if you call believing Jesus as foolish. Because denying Jesus' deity is a serious offense and has the ultimate consequence of eternal death. In other words, rejecting the truth of Jesus as the Son of God. On the surface, Jesus is warning us to avoid using disparaging name-calling or insults. That is not of God, but of the enemy who destroys and divides. 
but it, it's got to be more than just biting our tongues when we are angry. Something deeper inside of us needs to be dealt with. I, the, earlier, I, I, I mentioned there's a deeper spiritual meaning that Jesus was trying to get across here with a problem of murder and anger. For one, the very act of murder finds its roots in an angry, murderous spirit, which can be in any of us. God examines the very thoughts and intents of the heart and passes judgment upon unrighteous anger. You thunk it, you done it. Murder begins in the heart, and hurling insults are signs that there is hatred lurking within. An attitude of hatred that shows up in our anger makes us morally guilty before God. To think bad and evil thoughts about someone to some degree, we have committed a crime or sin against that person. Guilty. Recently, I saw this on one of my media feeds. It's pretty funny, kind of humorous, and I have to admit, but so true of how we feel when we are angry. Do we have that image to show? Here we see this grumpy koala bear and is thinking, I never wish death upon anyone who wrongs me. Instead, I wish sudden explosive diarrhea while stuck in traffic with frequent sneezes. Ouch. As redeemed sinners, Jesus is reminding us what we do, what we say, even what we think should reflect more the character of God than our natural selves. And I remind us, the world is watching. Our natural tendency is to justify and rationalize our behavior, even when deep down we know we are being bad. Plus, a bad attitude tainted by anger can be contagious and unhealthy in God's community. Because we all know this, birds of a feather flock together and misery loves company. We have to be mindful who we hang out with because we will be influenced by their thinking and behavior, especially if it's negative or toxic. Therefore, Jesus instructs us with something practical to help us manage our anger, and that is to have self-awareness in our relationships. Earlier in the previous examples that we saw in verse 22, Jesus was addressing uh, anger that we might have. Now, here in verse 23 to 26, Jesus used tangible examples of how to deal with anger that others might have against us. These cases are probably harder to deal with or recognize because we have to have the humility and the sensitivity to how others are feeling. Matthew 5 uh, verses 23, 24 says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So apparently, our personal relationships affect our worship, which is connected with our relationship and good standing with God. Jesus is calling us to reconcile with others we might have offended. Otherwise, our worship is not acceptable. It's negated. Our vertical relationship with God is not whole anymore. So question, is there someone in your life you need to go to who, who might be angry with you? 
Do you feel God nudging you at this very moment? This is never easy to do, but necessary if we hope to experience God's blessing of a full and joyful life. And notice, the responsibility is for us to be self-aware of the condition of our relationships with people in our circles, to take the initiative to clear the air and go to them to seek reconciliation. Would you find this easy to do, what Jesus is asking us to do? I would think this is hard. And this was no different for the listeners back then as it is for us today. That's upside-down living. Otherwise, it wouldn't be upside down. And you can see without this self-awareness in us how that, how that offended, angry person must feel about us. Frustrated, I'm sure. But we can't change others and can only start with ourselves. As people of God, we are to develop a self-awareness to notice if we made another person angry, then to seek amends with him or her in our personal relationships. And this posture of reconciliation applies not just in personal relationships, but I propose that it also applies in our business relationships. Matthew 5, verses 25 to 26, uses a case of paying our debts to others quickly. Here, we are advised to be proactive, to settle our debts in a timely, urgent fashion before disputes escalate, which is sadly in contrast to the to the world being so litigious and suit-happy. Easier to, to not think of the good of the other party, but rather for our own individual rights. We are always looking for the biggest bang for the buck. Do you think people will notice a difference if you paid on time, honored your contracted deliverables, fair in your negotiations? That's what upside-down people do. Um, being on staff at Christian Living Church for over 22 years now, I've had the privilege to work with many pastors and leaders on our staff. And, and one pastor who is a mentor and a good friend was leaving our church for a good reason, to start a new ministry. And on his goodbye time with me, he asked me if he had ever offended me in, in any way. And if so, asked for, for my for forgiveness. That, that blew me away because that never had happened to me before. What he did was so upside down, even in ministry of all places. But he was such a great model of a godly man following Jesus' teaching to pro- proactively seek to reconcile. It impressed me so much and touched me so much that I I will try to do that in the same way in my own life. So some of you may be asking, why do this? Not to murder. Ah, that's no problem. Sure, to manage our our anger well. That's really good. Check. All good. But is that enough to motivate us to be upside down in our ways? Because the world's ways seem so nice and comfy. Well, if you believe in investing in a better world and having a more full and joyful well-being, you will understand why it is important to do this. And that is to pursue shalom in our community and world by serving others. 
Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace or wholeness. It is completeness. And there's a reason why Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount talking about the characteristics of people who are, the, are his followers. And these are known as the Beatitudes. And Matthew 5 verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Like I began my talk this morning, we are children of God. So we should resemble God. And God is peace. According to this verse, if we want to be known as children of God, we are to be peacemakers too, not troublemakers. Peacemakers don't want to murder, don't hate people in anger, don't throw shade on others, but build them up. A peacemaker is one who promotes God's peace. As Christians, we are to seek shalom or wholeness for ourselves and the watching world. This practically means putting our own selfish desires aside and seeking the well-being of others. Another way we often say this is to love your neighbor as yourself, which is so countercultural and oftentimes so unnatural, especially when we've been hurt or we're suffering or in pain. Earlier, we sang that song, It Is Well but With My Soul, and it was penned by an author who just lost his four daughters. This morning, um, my heart is heavy because when I came here, I heard uh, sad news that a, a young woman who grew up in our church was a victim of a crime in New York City and was killed tragically by some stranger who pushed her under a subway train. I can't imagine what her parents are feeling right now. And amongst that kind of pain and tragedy, God calls us still to be peacemakers. Peacemakers create an environment of peace in the community even when it provides no gain to you. This is sacrifice. This is the cost of servanthood. Again, upside down in a world that is more me, me, me. As Christians, we're called to care for the spiritual needs of people, as well as the physical, seeking to create shalom for each person we encounter. This is hospitality and generosity to make others whole again. This is our good deeds, like giving out free eyeglasses to the neighborhood or bringing meals to a woman's shelter, helping campus ministries reach out to students, or donating so little kids can have Christmas presents in Tijuana, all under the banner of Jesus. And I think, most importantly, Jesus calls us to be peacemakers in our relationships, to be a unifier and not a divider, which is challenging and upside down in the world's ways. Practicing confession, repentance, forgiveness, and lament is hard and takes discipline, but gives peace. This is not the world's way, but upside down way. And that's how we will make a distinctive difference in the world as children of God. Having our relationships healthy and right leads to peace in ourselves and in our community. Earlier, I asked this question, how is your righteousness? Remember, righteousness is defined as having a right relationship with God and with people. 
vertical and horizontal relationships. Jesus uses this topic of murder as a lead-in to anger. Both can destroy peace. Both are not part of God's kingdom. So I want to challenge us this week to take a moment to examine our relationships we have with other people in our lives. And more importantly, which we can easily make secondary, examine our relationship with Jesus and spend time with him while in prayer or reading his word and scripture. And decide on a plan if mending needs to take place. Jesus made this bold statement that our righteousness must be greater than the Pharisees to enter the kingdom of God, which seems impossible. It is if we depend on ourselves. However, the good news is that our righteousness comes from Jesus Christ and not us. We can never be perfect. Jesus is perfect. One day we will come before God to be judged. And if you want to be righteous before God, then commit to the following then commit to following Jesus and be obedient to his teachings. Then Jesus will be your advocate before God when you have a relationship with him. Romans 4 verse 24 gives this hope. But also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him and him being Jesus, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. If you have never made the decision to believe and follow Jesus, I want to invite you to do so. Your life will never be the same. It will change forever. Come talk to me or anyone on the staff, and we will help you understand what it means to have this kind of relationship and in turn receive wholeness. Because a relationship with Jesus, if we trust the promise that Apostle Paul made in in Romans 4, credits us with Jesus' perfect righteousness. That will, lead, that will lead to eternal life. Not only that, you will also receive the precious gift of the Holy Spirit that will guide you in your earthly life, especially in those moments when you are struggling with anger. The peace of the Lord, shalom, will be with you too, letting you to be a peacemaker for God so then you can then pass it on to others. Peacemakers will make the world a better place. And if you are a peacemaker, you receive the reward and blessing of being a child of God. That's wholeness and vitality in Jesus Christ. That's something definitely to be joyful about. So how can the world be a better place with you in it? Invest in peace and be a unifier and not a divider. In our world, it has become so polarized and divided. This will make you distinctive and upside down in the world's eyes. Plus, receive God's blessing for a more full and joy-filled well-being. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bless each person hearing my voice to desire and receive the fullness and wholeness that comes through your Son, Jesus, who gives a peace that the world cannot give, a peace or shalom that satisfies every urge and thirst we might have and overcomes hate and anger so we can love in the name of Jesus. I praise you and give thanks for the precious gift of your son, Jesus. I pray this in the most precious name of Jesus. Amen.